a Podcast One production. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger has spent over 15 years studying spontaneous healing, pioneering the use of scientific tools to investigate recoveries from incurable illnesses. In the medical community, miraculous recoveries are typically dismissed as flukes and outliers because they can't be explained within the constructs of typical modern care. Jeffrey says first we need to physically heal our diet and our immune systems. Next, we need to mentally heal our stress responses and our identities. In the conversation that follows, Jeffrey and I discuss the science behind spontaneous remissions, how our environment sets the stage for healing, and the power of love. Love wins. It's a really big deal. It's hard for science to walk into and study this really rigorously because science is developed to study the things we can see and touch. And love isn't something that we can see and touch in a material way, but it's very real. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Jeffrey Rediger is a physician and a psychiatrist. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing. In this episode, you will learn why food is medicine and how the mind is one of our most powerful tools. Jeffrey Rediger, thank you for joining us today. You have done so much fascinating work into spontaneous healing, spontaneous remissions, But I'd like you to start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your background and what led you to do the work that you're doing today. Well, I was raised on a farm in northern Indiana, which is in the uh, very center of the United States. I come from an Amish background, so I come from a world that's very different than the world I live in now. Uh, I grew up going to public school during the day. But my life at home was very differently. My family left the Amish community when I was two years old. And so I grew up with parents that drove cars and did those kinds of things. And we had tractors on the farm. But it was still a very conservative world with very little access to TV or to radio, to store-bought clothing, My parents grew the wheat that they ground into flour for bread and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of great things about it, but it was also very restrictive and challenging. And I was a confused kid that became a rebel (laughs) at some point uh, because I just couldn't put together my world in school where we talked about science and math and read books. And at home, the Bible was thought to be sufficient for all knowledge. And so... So I left all that at age 18 and went to college and began to really ask a lot of questions because college is a very different culture than the world I've come from. And trying to understand the different cultures and the ways in which those two cultures answered questions really differently was um, involved a lot of work. Worldviews are very totalistic in their uh, ways of operating. They answer all the questions from within that particular worldview. And so 
to see how different questions are answered, it just required a lot of work for me to try to get to the bottom of it. So then after that, I went to seminary at Princeton and was um, I got a Master of Divinity. It's a three-year degree in, for me in theology and philosophy of science. And I really looked hard and went deep into the relationship between our spiritual and religious beliefs and how that relates to science and convinced my sci- my, myself that science is a fabulous thing. So then I went to medical school. Actually, one little story there is when I was at Princeton, I came um, back to Indiana for a weekend and my best friend's mom uh, said, what are you going to do with all the education? And I said, well, I'm going to be a college professor. And she said, you're going to get all that education and not do something to help people? So again, two juxtaposed worldviews. And uh, so when I said, well, maybe I'll just go to medical school. Everybody in both of my worlds understood that, and that made a lot of sense to people. It was something that the people I uh, grew up with understood. Medicine made sense, but yet I could still do my ideas, that my interest in ideas, and pursue those. So med school became kind of a perfect solution for me, and uh, things just continued to unroll from there. So seminary, and then medical school, and then residency at Harvard in psychiatry. It just became a way to continue combining my interest in science with my interest in higher capacities of the mind and the heart. And then shortly after I graduated from residency, I um, was in a small private practice and an oncology nurse at Mass General came to me and asked me to help explain to her son that she had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and told that she had a matter of months to live. Pancreatic cancer is a really terrible diagnosis to receive. Pancreatic endocarcinoma usually results in death within a matter of months, and there's not a lot that can be done usually to stop that. So she um, then went to a healing center in Brazil and began calling me and writing me saying that she was seeing some amazing recoveries and she hoped I would look into it. She was thinking that with my dual background in medicine and theology that uh, maybe I could try to dig into this a little bit. And I was a new young medical director at McLean and um, faculty at Harvard. And I said, no, I didn't think anything likely was going on. And so Nicola was very um, uh, persistent, shall we say. She began having people call me from around the country and elsewhere saying they had these remarkable recoveries and did I want to hear their stories? So I said no for a while, but people began sending me their medical files and most of them had an explanation that made sense from within the worldview that I was operating from as a physician, but there's a few that didn't. And that's what began to really pique my interest and eventually caused this whole pathway to begin. That was 17 years ago. And so for the past 17 years, I have been following three strict criteria. I've, I told people I would not look at their stories unless they had medical evidence for an illness that was genuinely incurable according to our current understanding. Number two, they had to have medically indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery. And number three, there had to be no complicating factors such as an experimental medication or anything else that could potentially explain how they got better. That's the criteria I followed. And 
that thread has been a pathway into a really different way of understanding the possibilities of what happens when we get ill. What have you found, Jeffrey? Well, so what I have found is that sometimes you have to travel to the edge in order to better understand the center of how healing and well-being occur. As a physician, I was trained to make a diagnosis and start a medication, and that's typically what we do. But in retrospect, it's startling to me to realize that we don't really study healing and well-being. Now, that is starting to change. We are in the early stages of a worldview change where well-being is becoming increasingly important, and it's something that medicine is beginning to study, but we're only ankle deep into a massive worldview change around that. Mm. So... In Cured, I write about four pillars of healing and well-being, and these are factors that I saw demonstrated across a wide variety of diagnoses and stories. You mentioned in Cured, spontaneous healings are looked at as miracles. Yes. And I think you're trying to take the stigma around that away because it seems that there's so much more, and definitely after reading your book, than it being a miracle as such. Yeah. Well, there's such a chasm that has historically existed between mind and body, between medicine and psychology, between these larger capacities of the mind and the heart and the more material approach of traditional medicine. It's very exciting that those barriers are coming down and that now researchers on both ends of those spectrum are all building stair steps between these uh, different dimensions and disciplines. And we're finding that there is enormous power to heal and achieve well-being once we understand the ways in which these different dimensions of us come together. You say that modern medicine typically tells you what the situation is and what you will be living with, not what's possible or what could be. Yeah, well... I mean, modern medicine is brilliant in many ways, and science has made massive inroads to help us really go deep into understanding the cellular mechanisms of all kinds of things in the brain and in the body. But one of the things we do with traditional science, and that's a really big topic, but what we do is we regress things around the mean. Mm -hmm. We regress things around what's average, and that's great. But the people I study are not average. They're the ones who are screened out in the data. They're the ones we don't study. And, you know, it's basically what it comes down to is if I was ill, absolutely, I would want to know what the average person does. But even more, I would want to know what the ultimate achievers in health do. We study ultimate achievement in sports. We study ultimate achievement in business. We should be studying ultimate achievement in health and well-being because they're doing things really differently. I'm a runner. I really enjoy running. I will never break the four-minute mile, but I really enjoy studying great runners because that helps me know better how my body works and I can adapt things that they're doing to my running. And that's really useful. If I was ill or if I, and I do, what I do is I really work to improve my own well-being. There's all kinds of things that you can learn from these people. Mm -hmm. And they have figured some things out that are really useful to us. And the fact that we screen them out in our data and don't study them is, is shocking. You opened the book with a story about Claire. Can you talk a little bit yeah. uh, about her journey? Claire 
like many of the people I've studied, I have learned so much from her. And I selected her to start the book off with because there's so many different dimensions that her story captures. She was just kind of every woman in many ways. She was a um, lovely lady who was diagnosed with pancreatic adenocarcinoma, like Nicola was. She was diagnosed by biopsy, so we know that the diagnosis was accurate. She was told that she had a matter of months to live, and she fully expected to die. Uh, she is somebody who has always valued medicine and science. In her case, however, after reading lots of uh, information on the internet and reading lots of articles, she decided that if she only had a few months to live, she didn't want to pursue surgery or chemotherapy or radiation because she decided that quality of life was more important to her than a few more months at the end. Mm. And so, so after soberly considering all of this, she didn't pursue um, any of those treatments but she, this is not somebody, she's not a woo-woo person. This is not who Claire is. And so she really kind of walks between these different ways of doing things in a way that I thought captures a lot of the universally human kinds of stories that I've seen. She told me, she said, if she only had a matter of months to live, she wanted to spend it with the people that she loved rather than sitting in a dark doctor's office with people who were dying. Mm. And so she fully expected to die. This was in 2008, and um, time began to go by. Now, she did a lot of things. Uh, she expected to die, but she also was changing her nutritional level a lot. She was um, dealing with anger that she had held towards into other individuals in her life. She was really cleaning up her life in a lot of ways. One of the reasons I told her story um, first in the book is that she also has a website where people can go more deeply into her story if they mm -hmm. want to, because... I could only tell parts of her story. I couldn't go as deeply into it as I wanted in order to still do justice to the issues that were required by the book. So she has a website called livingwithpancreaticcancer.com where people can go more deeply into her story for themselves. And one can never adapt one's story into their life in a complete way. One has to adapt certain principles and factors into their own unique, unrepeatable situation in their own lives. And that's an, an, a, a big point that I make in Cured is the need to adapt situations to your own unique circumstances. And Claire is really good at talking about that. So what did Claire do that has allowed her to live today? So like many people I study, um, changing her nutritional density, mm. changing her nutritional level in her life was kind of a first step into a different way of living. And so she read an article and, and found out that salt is bad for the pancreas in excessive amounts. So she quickly eliminated a lot of salty foods in her life. And she began to clear out her diet from refined sugars, from refined flours, from most white rice. She got rid of a lot of the white things in her life, the white rice, the white bread, the, um, the white sugars. And she began to find creative ways to make great tasting fruits and vegetables. 
I will say as a physician, I had no idea how much better I could feel and how much I could enjoy eating more by making these kinds of changes. And it took people like Claire to introduce to me a whole different way of thinking about food, which I just had been completely ignorant of. In medical school, I was taught that the problem among Westerners is that we have malnutrition or that we don't have malnutrition. We have overnutrition. Mm. Well, it turns out we have massive amounts of malnutrition. We just don't realize it. In the United States, it's been a collusion of industry paying off political leaders through lobbyists uh, and, and also the academics with the kind of research studies that are designed. It's been a collusion of these three institutions to create a real misunderstanding around nutrition. So these individuals I studied have really helped me come to a very different understanding of what true nutritional density means and what it means to eliminate empty calories. Claire was one of the teachers of many around this for me. She got rid of the white rice, the white flour, the white sugar in her pantry and moved away from animal products as she began to realize she felt better with whole foods, plant-based foods. And that was an important start for her was around the nutrition. But she also began to face her fears of dying. She mm -hmm. began to uh, deal with people who she had felt criticized by and had harbored some difficult feelings in her heart about them and began to journal around that. She made a lot of changes in her life mentally as well. What are the similarities that you've seen between the people that have all had spontaneous remissions? One is nutrition. And, and it's not that people made the same nutritional changes. There were some differences. But the underlying commitment to eliminating processed foods, sugars, and refined flours from the diet tended to be pretty dominant, even though the more superficial changes around uh, food could differ quite a lot. So that was one thing. Uh, other changes that people made, the second pillar I talk about in Cured is healing the immune system. Mm. It turns out that we don't really have problems like diabetes or heart disease, cancer or autoimmune illness, as much as an underlying problem with chronic inflammation. And research is showing this significantly every day now, but it takes 30 years or more for research in the laboratory to get into the medical clinic or in the hospital. So there's a big lag between what's being demonstrated research-wise and clinically. So to help people heal the chronic inflammation in their bodies is a really important step as well. One way to do that is to heal the stress response. A lot of people live in chronic fight, flight, or freeze. Mm. And when a person is in chronic fight, flight, or freeze, they are secreting stress hormones like cortisol or norepinephrine into their bodies. And that makes the immune cells, which want to help you get better, it makes them sluggish or it makes them perform incorrectly. That even in some cases, they'll start to attack the body instead of efficiently knowing how to clear out an invader, whether it's a virus or something else. Stress is obviously a big one. Uh, and you speak about that quite a lot in Cured, and I find, a f find it fascinating. And you speak about how it's our interpretation of stress, because we all go through stressful situations. And as you yeah. say in the book, it's, right. it's, it's good to have some sort of stress in your life. 
Right. But it's the interpretation of the stress that can be very harmful. Yeah. And so really a lot about a lot of it is changing the way that we think and process stressful situations. It really is. And when we change the interpretation that we apply to the stressful situation, that can have profound effects on our physiology. So there's research that is fascinating around this uh, that's accumulating rapidly right now. One of the research studies I talk about in Cured is about these um, people who their job was to clean hotel rooms. That's what they were hired to do. When you create a group of of people who are cleaning the hotel rooms, but you tell them that this helps meet daily requirements for exercise, for example, that was, it turned out they had a significant effect on their blood pressure and on their health in a positive way. And so they started to interpret their work differently and see it differently. And that's something that it's important to understand with stress in general. Running a marathon can be stressful, but if you interpret that as challenge stress, something you want to accomplish, something that uh, you do to improve your well-being and help you reach into a higher uh, capacity of who you are as a human being, that can be a great stress for mm -hmm. you and can do great things for you physiologically. That's really different than finishing the work every day depleted and questioning your value and worth or being in a toxic relationship where you feel run down frequently. Those are really different kinds of stress. Challenge stress is a very different physiology than toxic stress. And learning how to either change your environment or change your response to your environment through interpreting it differently can have profound physiological effects on our bodies. Well, I've seen it with myself. Uh, I never had any effects on my, on my body as such, but... When I learned the techniques on changing the way that I was perceiving stress. Yeah. And, you know, my one of my beautiful spiritual, late spiritual teachers, Wayne Dyer, says, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Right. And it is so true. When you, when you lift the lid on what you think is so stressful and really deep dive into it, a lot of the time it's no big deal. Right. No big deal. And what I've learned as well is, you know, we're all going to have stress in our lives, but how do you deal with that stress? Does it take you a month or two months to get over that situation? Right. Or does it take you an hour or a day? And when you see that stress response decrease, you know that you're, you're on the right path. Yeah. I mean, changing our perception of the stress in a way that we can be grateful for the opportunity to learn how to solve a problem changes our physiology. Mm. And I talk in Cured about the, the vagus nerve, for example, this, this super highway of relaxation and connection and love within us. It's the nerve that connects all of our bodily organs and also causes us to smile and our eyes to light up when we make eye contact with somebody. Those kinds of ways to activate the vagus nerve gets us out of fight or flight and into a place where we open our hearts, make connection with others, and provide a physiology that our immune cells love mm. and helps them function more efficiently and correctly. Love is a big thing, isn't it? You know, I did a meditation this morning and I it was like a love loving meditation where you just basically get into your heart center. 
And for the last, I think, maybe 10 minutes or so, it's just about being in this feeling of love. And I walked out of that the happiest person alive. I wasn't thinking of anything. All I was doing was trying to exude love from my heart. Yeah. And I love wins. Love wins. It's a really big deal. It's hard for science to walk into and study this really rigorously because science is developed to study the things we can see and touch. And love isn't something that we can see and touch in a material way, but it's very real. And so watching these people tell me their stories about what healed their hearts, what helped them give up old grudges, uh, what helped them genuinely make contact with the people they meet on the street or the people they meet on Zoom now um, Mm. is a way that we now know has a profound physiological effect. What are some of the stories that do stick out to you that you've heard people tell you about that? Some of the stories that really affect me a lot. Mm. Yeah, there's been so many of those. Um, You know, talking about love, for example, uh, Matthew has a story that I talk about in Cured. He was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiform, which is a really serious form of brain cancer, diagnosed by biopsy. So we know the diagnosis was correct. And boy, he was diagnosed, I forget how many years ago, it's been been something like 20 years ago that he was diagnosed, I believe now. And, um, and to hear his story about uh, falling in love and finding who he believes his true soulmate is and the other changes that he made in his life too that we're talking about changing the... Uh, relationship he had with stress, uh, changing his nutritional plan, but also learning at a new level what it means to open his heart and to live from a place of love. It was really touching for me. And it's important to talk about this stuff in a way that's not, that doesn't skate over the hard realities of what a serious illness is, because To talk about these things, one has to really understand what people live with. And it's not something that one can just simply say, well, I just want to love more deeply. And that's going to make one's health change fundamentally. It's something that is very individual. And one has to have a lot of respect for each individual situation. And the truth is, you know, I'm one of the first people to study these stories and we don't have um, a lot of scientific analysis on this yet i'm we have a lot of research to do to walk into these worlds where we really do bring the mind and the body and the spirit together in new ways and begin to really develop this new kind of technology so it's important to understand that you can't just say well, you need to heal your identity. You need to heal your beliefs. You need to love differently. It's not that simple, Mm. but it's still also true that these are the beginnings of what it takes to understand really powerful pathways. It's so fascinating. Something you speak about in the book and something that I have been so fascinated with over the years is the healing centers in Brazil. Yeah. And about Maybe 10 years ago or so, I found out about John of God. And when I find about, out about something and it really interests me, I will go digging and digging and, and, and try and look for as much information as I can on it. And this John of God 
interest me so much. Yeah. So I started hearing all these stories about these healings and these amazing spontaneous remissions. And Wayne Dyer, who I touched on before, who has actually passed away a few years ago, who was a huge spiritual teacher, yeah. he had an unbelievable experience with with uh, John of God and he speaks mm. about having leukaemia and then having it. He actually was not at the centre. He had someone that had gone to the centre and they had given him herbs and all this kind of stuff and there was this strict guideline that he had to follow. But the long and short of it is, is basically that he came out of this this healing, this remote healing, and he was, he felt absolutely different. And he's, he was, he was, I think, basically cured of his leukemia. And he said the experience was like something he has never, ever gone through in his life. And this is a worldly man. Wow. Yet, I obviously hear stories that don't quite add up to that. And then there's been a lot of controversy over John of God in the last few years to do right. with sexual yeah. misconduct and that kind of stuff. Can you tell me what did you find when you went to those centres in Brazil and particularly the John of God Centre? Yeah, that was one of the important centres that I visited among others. That was back in 2003 when I made my first visit there. And actually it was confusing because there was medical evidence hardcore medical evidence that some people had recovered. I remember uh, saying to John of God, because one of the popular books that had come out at that time about John of God and his center there said that I think it was 95%, maybe it was 90%. So either 90% or 95% of people have recoveries. And I could tell from the interviews I was doing, there wasn't anything close to that. And I said that to him. He said, well, that's just for the popular uh, beliefs. And so, it's a, it's a complicated place. There is medical evidence that incurable illnesses do occur at times, both there with the work that John of God has done and many other places in the world. Sometimes people see healers and sometimes they don't. But there's also these other stories that were floating around at the time uh, that were concerning about uh, possible sexual assaults or, or other issues related to that. That was difficult for me because I didn't want to talk publicly about this kind of work and have people in a vulnerable state go to Brazil and be hurt in any way. So I was very quiet about it for years and quite stuck in, in the research in terms of looking at more cases from there. And that especially became complicated uh, when I was on Oprah in 2010 around uh, some of these issues. Because she went there. Oprah went there and did a story with John of God. Yeah, she did. After So I was on Oprah in 2010. And at some point after that, she went to Brazil and did a story there. And, and so, you know, these are complicated issues. I talked to a number of people who... There was concern there may have been some sexual assault, but when you actually sit down and talk to people during those years, subsequent to 2003, when you actually sit down and talk to people, the stories disappeared. Mm -hmm. There was only one person who, in all those years of me trying to understand what's the best way to deal with all this, 
who actually told me that she had been involved sexually. And, and then she said that she became angry and went public with her story because she felt spurned because he went to somebody else. Mm. And so these stories are complicated around power, around all kinds of issues and what is sexual assault and what isn't. And she also had a history of head injury. And so there's all these other issues in terms of her vulnerability around her willingness to go public, which may or may not have been the right thing for her. And so it was very difficult. And so then in the last several years, as these stories have come out and people are becoming more public, now it appears that people are more comfortable saying what really happened. So do people get cured there? There's medical evidence that is absolutely indisputable for incurable illnesses that some people do. Just like there's medical evidence for incurable illnesses and cures elsewhere, sometimes, like I said, with healers and without healers. It's not really about the healer in my mind. Um, It's about activating something that's latent within all of us. Mm. And sometimes healers help activate that, but it's not really about healers. So, yes, there's medical evidence stuff happens. It's not near as prominent as John of God was saying at the time. Um, But I've learned that spiritual healers can be complicated individuals and charisma and sexuality are powerful forces that are in some ways related to healing. And so things can get very complicated and people can misuse power easily in such situations. So interesting. With the people that you studied, how much does having faith in the divine God, the universe, a higher source have when you see people go into spontaneous remissions and those that have no faith? Faith is really important in some ways, but there's more to the story because Mm. faith can have components that are both conscious and subconscious. So a person can tell me that they have a lot of faith. I was raised in a very conservative environment that uh, was very fear-based in a lot of ways. And so people would talk about having faith, but you could feel the amount of fear that they had in them. And so faith was actually more complicated in some ways in that situation because fear is the opposite of faith. And so... I I believe that as human beings, we're not very good at knowing what we really believe. Sometimes those who know us and love us know us a lot better in that sense. So a person can say, I have a lot of faith in God, or I have a lot of faith in the divine. But somebody who knows them might say, well, their faith is actually more in their paycheck or in having security or in their looks. Paul Tillich is a famous theologian who said that we all have one ultimate concern that we completely build everything else in our lives around. And we might think we're building our lives around the divine. And that may be true. Or an atheist may say, I don't believe in God. But yet, if you look at their life, they just have so much faith in the friendliness and the goodness of the universe and in people. And that's a, that's faith. Mm. That's faith that there's something very benevolent in the world. And so, I've often encountered the reality that, for example, an atheist may say that they're, they don't believe in God, but they have such a faith in, that there's something good in the universe. And what they're against is really this patriarchal idea that there's this old man in the sky who's going to get you if you don't look over your shoulder a lot. 
And so that's, so I think faith, yes, is really a big deal, but what faith is uh, needs more explanation and, and analysis. The ones that you have found that have had faith that you would call the true faith, do they heal any faster than ones that don't? I didn't explicitly use um, qualitative or quantitative measures that try to capture that in my research. Yes, I would say that the answer to your question is yes, but that's a, um, that's the judgment of what my perception is as it has evolved over 17 Mm -hmm. years where I've seen the role that positive emotions play, the role that, that, love, that courage, that yes, faith plays. All of these positive emotions are really important for healing. But that's also a complicated statement too, because if a person tries to think positively, but they have a lot of fear in them, subconscious or conscious, that they haven't known how to move through, then it complicates that picture Mm. significantly. You talk a lot about diet and that is something that really stuck out to me in this book. And I think the statistic was that 88% of people, once they were diagnosed with an illness, went on to a vegetarian diet. Why does that play such an important role in healing? Well, I think that we are, as human beings, we are of two natures. We are both biological and we are spiritual and mental. And a lot of the people I studied made changes in both of those aspects of who we are. Not everybody did. I purposely told the story of Tom Wood, who recovered from diabetes largely in connection with nutrition. I also purposely told stories who I think they could have eaten cat food and still gotten better because they made such deep changes in their lives at a deeper level in terms of their fundamental beliefs about who they are and their value and what it means to be them in the world and to honor the dignity of that. Most of the time, people made deep changes in both. So nutrition is important because we are biological creatures. And it makes sense that if you change your fundamental physiology through the kinds of nutrients you put into your body, that that's going to change your biochemistry and potentially make your body less hospitable to disease. It often is um, important to understand the role that toxins play, I think, in our bodies from the kinds of um, foods that we put into our bodies, whether they are loaded with chemicals or, you know, a lot of our meat is trash in a lot of ways because of the antibiotics, the steroids, the chemicals, that the stress hormones that the animals live with. Um, and so there's, there's a, it's, a, it's a big topic. Why is plant-based seem to be quite effective for people? Well, there's probably different ways to answer that. Um, A lot of the animal products that we eat, and there's a lot of controversy around this, a lot of the animal products that we eat are inflammatory. And there's research that suggests that, well, maybe these animal products are less inflammatory when they are ingested with plant-based foods. And that, well, may be true, 
But we do know that animal products on their own, without plant-based food, they're highly inflammatory. So there is a lot of controversy around, can you offset the inflammatory effect of animal products with the plant-based foods? I have preferred to mostly go plant-based and that's also been the preference of most of the people I've studied. And so by just watching what these people have done over the years, I have come to believe that mostly plant-based is a really important approach. I tell people, if you want to eat meat, then try to limit that to 5% or less of your weekly intake. I think a lot of the fats associated with animal products are not that healthy for the body. I think that we are increasingly understanding as the science of nutrition really takes off at a whole new level as we start to study phytochemicals, for example, which is an undeveloped science, but looks like it's going to be really important in terms of helping us understand such a level of micronutrients and how important they are in our foods. The best way to get all these micronutrients is through plants. It's just a really, it's, that's where the dense nutrients really exist. We can get some of those nutrients through animal products, but that's getting them more secondarily mm. and less efficiently. And if you want nutritional density, then it's just much more efficient to get those nutrients and micronutrients from, from food. What I then found fascinating was there's been a lot of work done, and you speak about it, and I've heard it in my own circles as well, with people who have cancer going on a keto diet, yeah. which is obviously the opposite of what you were talking about, which then basically starves the cancer cells. Yes, it does. I mean, it is fascinating to me and something that never clicked in until I started hearing story after story of these people who'd gotten better. But I began to, as my, in my perception of this all began to change, I, be, I be realized that as physicians, when we want to diagnose cancer or if we're concerned that cancer may exist in a person's body, we will attach a radioactive molecule to sugar to a sugar molecule, and then we will inject that person with a sugar solution that has this radioactive label to it. And then we just look for if there's a place in the body that's sucking up the, the sugar. Cancer likes sugar. That's its favorite food in many ways. And, and so I told the story uh, in the book of Pablo, who, uh, who knew that and was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiform, a form of severe brain cancer, told he had a matter of a few months to live. And so he said, I'm just, I'm going to starve this cancer. And that's, that's what his effort became. He did adopt a keto diet. Now the keto diet is complicated. Um, most of the people I see that have adopted the keto diet, I'm concerned about because I'm, they don't seem to make a lot of distinctions too much of the time between healthy fats and less healthy fats. And so the research uh, is not clear yet to me that long-term that's necessarily the best approach. I, I think it's helpful in the short term, especially because the keto diet eliminates so many of the unhealthy foods, the, the um, processed foods, the sugars, the refined flours that are so unhealthy for the Western diet. It eliminates those almost completely. So that's a massive step forward. But in the long-term health of the person in the body, I, I'm not completely convinced yet. We just need a lot more research on that. You touch on antibiotics as well. 
which, I mean, this was fascinating. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about your research with that? Yeah. So that's a, a, a big topic, especially during a day when there's a pandemic, a viral pandemic going on. We have been taught and medicine has built itself at this time on the idea that that a silver bullet is the way to go. And it turns out that, and I discussed this in Cured, the number of times that a woman has had antibiotics is completely correlated with her risk of breast cancer, mm -hmm. for example. And so it's not just that if you have um, had a history of antibiotics, you have an increased risk of breast cancer. It's a dose-dependent relationship in the sense that the more times you have taken antibiotics in your life, the more you have an increased risk of breast cancer. So that's the doorway into a really different way of understanding the immune system. So what I proposed and cured and what I try to build an argument for is a radically different understanding of the immune system. And that's very relevant during this time of the COVID pandemic. We have been taught that the germ theory and the answer is really about taking an antibiotic and that is to solve our problems. But the truth is we are surrounded every minute of our lives inside and outside of our bodies by millions of bacteria, millions of viruses and pathogens. And all of these pathogens, they don't become invaders until something in our immune system breaks down. And so we often are treating symptoms rather than the cause. And I tell the story in Cured about the lifelong debate that went on between Louis Pasteur, who is the father of the germ theory, and his colleagues like uh, Antoine Béchamp, for example. And Antoine Béchamp and his colleagues argued that, that no, the germ is not the problem. It's the breakdown in the body that has created the possibility of a germ taking root and creating imbalance in the body and creating disease. That's the problem. So he said, if you have a pile of trash in the middle of the road, is it better to just keep waving away the flies or is it better to remove the trash? And I think that simple example it represents two really different ways of dealing with this. And so, for example, we know that in the United States, we are having experiencing enormous amount of illness and death with COVID because we have these comorbidities. We have these immune systems that are really broken down and people are very susceptible to um, catching COVID because of pre-existing heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and obesity. Well, we often think that the immune system is just about dealing with with uh, viral infections or bacterial infections, but the immune system is, when it goes awry, that's what creates chronic inflammation. So chronic inflammation is the sign of an immune system that is broken down, and chronic inflammation is what's the deeper cause of the heart disease, the diabetes, the cancer, the autoimmune problems. And so we already have a lot of people who experienced broken down immune systems and the people who have strong immune systems just are not susceptible to COVID in the same way. And so I'm really have been trying to write articles and to talk about the importance of healing our immune systems. It doesn't not take a long time to make huge improvements in the quality of one's immune cell functioning. And it would just 
go a long ways if we could help people understand the power of that. You talk about the stomach as being like a second brain and you speak a lot about microbiome. Why has that become such a hot topic? Because it's, it's showing through, through decades now of research that this is the future of a really different way of understanding our bodies. The microbiome is what Antoine Bachamp uh, called the inner terrain. Mm. And that was the approach that he took when he was fighting Pasteur around these issues. And so healing the microbiome, healing our gut, healing the leaky gut that's created from the uh, poor quality foods and the kinds of relationships that we have with stress, those kinds of things go a long ways towards healing the immune system because 80% of our immune system is in the gut. And so if you heal your gut, you go a long ways towards healing the immune system and the future of medicine as this begins to enter our clinics and hospitals will fundamentally change the way we think about infections, viruses, and illness in general, whether that's cancer or heart disease or diabetes or many other things. Don't you think it's funny that obviously diet plays such a big role, microbiome, all the things that you've been talking about are so important, yet, you know, you're ill, you go into a hospital. Our children's hospitals have a McDonald's in Australia in them. Right. Well, at least the one in Melbourne does. Right. And that's available for the parents to give the kids. Yeah. And if you're a patient in a hospital a lot of the time the food is horrendous. Yeah. And I'm not just saying in the way it tastes, the actual choices, you know, jam, toast, the you know, other things that are not nutrient-dense and will not actually do good things to aid your recovery. Right. It's shocking, isn't it? Shocking. I mean, it's shocking. It's shocking that I watch these people get better by changing the nutrition, and yet as a physician, I was given awful information about nutrition, a lot of misinformation, and doctors just don't know this. Food is medicine, but we are taught to make a diagnosis and start a medication, and that's as far as we go, and the body wants to heal. We just have to create the conditions so that it can, and it's we've just got to help change medicine so that people can heal instead of just taking medications for the rest of their lives. These changes will fundamentally come from people, I think, as people begin to wake up to the power of nutrition and the power of changing our relationship with stress, the power of healing our immune systems and our microbiomes, and the power of healing our uh, false beliefs. These kinds of things, as people begin to wake up to this, this will be a democratization of medicine where we will be in charge of our bodies, we will be the experts of our bodies, and we will find ways to heal that medicine will then catch up with later, I believe. You talk about also another fascinating topic, which is the China Project. Yeah. And the difference between the wealthy kids and the the poorer kids who are all getting sick. What were the findings in that? Yeah. So that story was in the Philippines, I, I believe, and that, that was T. Colin Campbell wrote a fascinating book. He was raised on a farm like I was and very much believed that uh, animal products and uh, the normal Western diet and protein was an important part of being healthy. He got a PhD in nutrition at Cornell University in the United States in New York and then was doing this work, this research in the Philippines. 
And these kids, uh, he noticed that that uh, kids he was he sat there to study kids who were dying, and so he was trying to investigate as a nutrition researcher why were these kids dying. What he realized eventually was that what the research revealed was that the children who were in the wealthy families they were having a lot of animal products uh, with the kind of protein they were getting, and it was it was it was causing a lot of disease and death for them. The poorer children were not getting that level of animal products. And it turned out that in this particular study, the kind of uh, toxin that was in the peanut butter at the time was being neutralized by the plant-based diet, but worsened by the animal products. And so it's a longer story than what we can talk about here, but going deep into what that really meant and around the uh, inflammatory effects of the animal protein when the children were receiving this toxin in the peanut butter turned out to be life-changing for him. And then, so then he went on to study this issue in China and wrote a fabulous book called The China Study that has become a pivotal book for understanding the power of nutrition. Wow. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? I would say this and this is this gets into the fourth pillar of of cured the the most powerful advice is also the most challenging to really come to terms with one of the most common things that people have said to me over the years is that it took an illness for them to wake up and realize they needed to stop taking care of everyone else or responding to the perceived expectations of others and instead learn what it means to also pay attention to what creates life and well-being within mm. them you know, we are all born and into our families and we inherit a lot of beliefs. We, we pick up the beliefs from our parents, from or the interpretations we make from how our parents treat us, from the interpretations we make uh, from our interactions with kids on the playground, with teachers. And we grow up inheriting or creating a lot of beliefs, some of which are conscious, some of which are subconscious, some of which are true, some of which are false. For the most part, a lot of these beliefs go unchallenged or unexamined. And I've come to believe that if we live with a combination of true and false beliefs, then we're going to probably have mixed results in our life, whether that's in our life or in our bodies or, or otherwise. So waking up to the dignity of who one is um, is is really a big deal, learning what it means to live an authentic life. I can't tell you how many people I have talked to over the years as a physician who will experience a deadly diagnosis such as cancer as a kind of relief. I mean, they might be frightened and all that, but they'll, they also can more frequently than you would expect have a more complicated reaction. It'll be like, oh, so I've got 12 months to live that means I can focus on what I want to do with my life now. It's very common that a, a housewife will be so taken up, for example, with the care of children, uh, trying to take care of the needs of her husband, maybe trying to manage a job, or a, a young man might go to law school because his father wanted him to go to law school. And this disconnect between who we feel we have to be or who we sh feel we should be is and 
can create a real gap between who we authentically feel that we are or what it means to have a life that really puts a light in our eyes and helps us truly be ourselves mm -hmm. and not feel like we have to judge that or feel like that's not good enough in some way. And so watching these individuals who I study wake up to the dignity and value of who they are in a way they don't feel they have to question that, where they feel like they can be their true self, whether that's going to be for six months or 12 months or whatever, it's just been a really big lesson for me mm. about how much we need to get rid of the shoulds in our life and live from a deeper place. What's your greatest hope for society today? Well, I can tell you after working on this article today uh, that's trying to really get to the bottom of my concern, for example, about why COVID is killing so many people in the United States and around the world, and looking at the mess that our democracy is in in the United States and coming to understand the deep connection between our inability to heal this pandemic and crush COVID and the dysfunctional, polarized democracy we re where we, we create partial truths and treat them as whole truths. And then we kind of hammer the other side with our partial truths instead of seeing what's also true on the other side. Democracy in the new age, in the age of the internet, means that we need to start creating social platforms that help us hear each other and value each other, open our hearts to each other and really listen so we can hear their partial truths and bring together our partial truths with theirs and create consensus rather than extremism and polarization. And I think the arc of history is moving in the direction of increasingly valuing the underlying goodness and latent capacities of each individual human being. And that's what democracy and human rights and the rise of spirituality outside of religion. That's what all of this is about. And the learning how to value the light that each one of us brings in the world, open our hearts to that and that light in others and create systems that support that and social platforms that support that. I think that's one really important thing that we need in the world. What's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? I think learning how to heal my own beliefs and beliefs about the nature of the universe we live in so that I can live in a more open-hearted way and see the truth and the dignity of every person and to see what's true rather than the masks that we all wear. We all wear these masks when we go about our days. You know, we wear masks that, you know, as a physician, I wear the mask as a physician I wear um, figuratively or literally a white coat. And when a person comes into the hospital and they're my patient, they play the role of a patient. They wear the mask of a patient. I play the role of a physician. And there's times to really do that. People sometimes need me to act like the physician and even be stern sometimes and tell a person what they need to do. But there's other times that they need me to lay aside the white coat and just talk as a human being. And I think to know how to live in that dialectic really well and to see what's true rather than what we think is true from what we see or judge, those are two really different things. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is seeing the 
truth and the value and the dignity of each human being in a way that we see that fundamentally without judgment, but in an open-hearted way. And one can find that sometimes our education helps us in that direction. And sometimes it actually obstructs us in terms of understanding that better. And I think things are never what they appear to be. I've been so touched in my life by people who may not have lots of education or wealth or social standing. And yet they will see something with such clarity that it changes fundamentally how I see things. Things are not always what they appear to be Mm. for any of us. Jeffrey, thank you for all the wonderful work that you are doing because you have changed so many, so many lives and it's, it's really important. So thank you for sharing your information with us today. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolich and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.